0: This year is the 10-year anniversary of the global financial crisis. Uh, The anniversary marked by the collapse of the Lehman Brothers 10 years ago, the big American investment bank, and many in the banking industry, economists, journalists, have said that the whole crisis came down to one word, and that word is greed. A business Standard has written the banks got greedy and started giving loans to people without verifying their income or credit history. Now this came to be known as subprime loans. Greed, that is a quite a damning word for those in the finance industry to admit. And greed is a human behaviour. And astute investors, policy makers, and... Uh, economists recognize that the markets and economy is really driven by human behavior but the thing is we never seem to learn the lessons of greed do we because throughout decades and throughout centuries as evidence of our economic cycles of booms and busts of booms and busts we never ever throughout human history learn our lessons of greed Alan Greenspan, the former chair of the Federal Reserve of the United States, has said that the GFC was a a once-in-a-half-century, or probably once-in-a-century type of event. But if you've been following the housing or financial markets recently, if you're a Fin Review reader, then perhaps you might be aware of the recent chatter about the concerns of being on the verge of our next financial crisis only ten years after the GFC. Financial journalist of the Financial Times, Gillian Tett said, memory is short. We are already seeing the crazier practices of the world before the GFC creep back into the system. Corporate debt levels are higher than in the GFC. And so some journalists, some top quants in investment banks are prophesying the next financial crisis because our human tendency is to return to greed. In today's passage, we see James speak in the manner of an Old Testament prophet who prophesies the end of greed so that we don't ever return to greed. He prophesies the end of greed so that we as a humanity might not ever return to greed. James says in verse 1, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Now we need to ask... Who is the rich people that James is addressing in such damning words? Is he addressing the rich Christians in the church that he's writing to? Or is he writing to the rich people that's outside of the church? And many commentators show that James is talking about the rich who aren't Christ followers. Uh, And we kind of get clues of that by pointing out that James doesn't call these rich people to repent, to have repentance and faith. And that's the pattern that he's been doing throughout the letter so far. I mean, if you've been following this series so far, doesn't it feel like the spiritual equivalent of someone pinning you against the wall and just punching you like this, bang, 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 verse after verse, Sunday after Sunday. It just feels like you're being pummeled by James. And if that's you, you probably might be ready for a break. But James still has another chapter to go But we need to remember that James goes hard on our sin because faith is expressed in faithfulness. The conviction of sin, if you're feeling those punches and you're feeling convicted of sin, that is God's grace. Because as we're learning from James, grace leads to good works. Grace leads to obedience. Faith leads to faithfulness. And in order for faith to lead to faithfulness, in order for grace to do that kind of work, it has to hit sin hard. God's grace doesn't just give you peace of mind and God's grace doesn't just give you happy feelings. God's grace has the power to drive out sin. And that's what you want. You want a faith that works. If you just want peace of mind, you could really just go to a yoga class. There's plenty along Darling Street If you just want to have happy feelings, look, you could go to Kevin Hart, who's uh, uh, in town this week and have a good laugh this weekend. But if you want peace, joy, and change, then you want God's grace to break through the hardness of sin. You want a faith that leads to faithfulness. You want a faith that works. That's what we want. And so, in regards to the rich people, James doesn't call them to faithfulness and obedience. Instead, he prophesies their condemnation. He says the rich people are to weep and wail because of the misery of God's judgment that will come upon them. James speaks like this Old Testament prophet who condemns and judges, as we read in the Old Testament, the judges the unbelieving nations who oppress the nation of Israel. The Old Testament prophets encourage Israel to continue to labor patiently for God in faith. In the faith in trusting in God, who will indeed bring justice against their oppressors. And so, if, if the rich people are not followers of God, then you might think, then what James is saying, he doesn't really apply to me because he's talking about those people, he's not talking about me. And yes, even though James is addressing the unbeliever, it still applies to Christians because James shows us the pits of greed. So that we might never fall into them he shows us the absolute pits of greed so that we won't ever fall into them and so that's why what James says here is both good news that God will bring an end to greed and injustice but it's also a warning that we might not ever fall into that temptation of greed and so James shows us what greed looks like in practice he's a practical guy and he spells out what greed looks like in practice And they are hoarding, fraudulence, indulgence, and betrayal. So firstly, hoarding. Verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. James shows us that hoarding our wealth is spiritually foolish because all material wealth depreciates to say more kindly. James uses much stronger words, like rot, moths, and corrosion. And yes, shares and property are appreciating assets, but assets values do go down as we are seeing now. And seeing these assets in light of the last days, which is a really shorthand way of saying that Jesus will one day return, when we see that these assets when he returns, that all earthly assets will take a permanent dive and the deeds of things of the earth will be transferred to the rightful owner who is Jesus. So we are just stewards of our apartments, our houses, our investments, our savings, as well as our skills and talents and gifts. And Jesus says it's spiritually foolish in light of eternity to hoard wealth and talent which just sits there and does nothing of eternal significance. See, Jesus is not anti-investing, of increasing and multiplying our wealth and talents. Jesus is actually very pro-investing. In the parable of the talents, Jesus expects us as his servants to invest our wealth and talents so that we can have a greater ability and capacity to do more good works, to make a greater contribution to Jesus' mission. In other words, hoarding is increasing our wealth and talents without increasing our contribution to Jesus' mission. Another way to think about it, hoarding is withholding the returns on Jesus' investment on you. Hoarding is withholding the returns of Jesus' investment in you. Because Jesus gave you your gifts, he gave you your talents, he gave you your earning capacity so that you cannot only just be on mission for your corporation, but you can be also be on mission for him. He gave you all these things, not so that you can specialize in your career, but he gave you all these things so you can be a specialist amongst other specialists in his church to work together for a greater mission than your corporate mission. So you have to ask yourself, what skills and talents are you withholding from Jesus? And I have to say, as a church, we are actually doing really well in our use of time and talents to serve one another in church. We're very active, uh, very engaged in serving one another. And next year, we will communicate a ministry pathway to make that whole process of getting involved in serving in church clearer and easier. But where we all need to be challenged is the giving of our wealth. And look, we're not the only church it's pretty much every church in the world in this current state of affairs. I researched and found International Bulletin of Missionary Research. And this report reports that evangelical Christians across the world, and it's estimated that all evangelical Christians across the world have a combined personal income of $42,000 billion in US dollars per year, or in other words, $42 trillion in US dollars per year by 550 million Christians across the world. Giving to church and missions is reported to be 700 billion. That's incredible. That's a really great thing that we have such a great output in financial terms to support church and missions. But the thing is, as a percentage of our total personal income per year, it's actually only 1.6% of personal income. In terms of Aussies, bring it back home. MacRindle Research reports that Australian churchgoers who have high incomes of over 158,000 give 0.7% of their income. Those with incomes below that give 0.6% of their income. The good news is that churchgoers give more than the average taxpayer who give about 0.3% to charities. But really, compared to the world, we are not a very generous nation. Americans give twice as more than Australians. But as you look at these sobering statistics, don't see it as a guilt trip, but see it as an opportunity to invest more in God's mission. If you could have an opportunistic mindset and imagine if every evangelical Christian gave 10% that would raise enough money to mobilize two million missionaries. Look, if we even set a lower bar of giving 5% of our income, that is still one million missionaries. I think Matthias was saying, Wellington City is about half a million. So imagine Wellington City and maybe another New Zealand city being sent out into the world. Can you imagine that? Brisbane City, if we kind of look at Australian cities, has just over 2 million people. Can you imagine half of Brisbane being sent out to the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus is saying, it's spiritually foolish to hoard our wealth because we would be poor investors in the kingdom of God. Jesus actually is pro-investing. He wants us to be astute and great investors. And the kingdom of God has the greatest return, exponential and perpetual riches, especially riches for the soul that no money can buy. And so therefore, the smart thing to do is to enlarge our exposure to the kingdom of God in the portfolio of our investment and our lives. That's the smart thing to do to increase our exposure to the kingdom of God in the portfolio of our investments and of our life. Can you imagine by an incremental exposure the type of return that could be gained? If we would expose more of our money and more of our lives into the kingdom of God, hundreds, thousands, millions of people might be brought into Jesus' kingdom. Don't be a poor investor. Be a great one. May we be a church that are great investors. The next practice of greed is fraudulence. Verse 4. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James is obviously talking about exploitation and denying the simple human rights that people but God hears the cries of the oppressed and the exploited. The Lord sits as judge of the oppressor and the all-sufficient God attends to the needs of his suffering people. The application for us as a church is that next year, as part of our, part of our ministry plan, I'm gonna have the exciting job of announcing our new Mercy ministry partners that we will be getting behind as a church. We're gonna to continue to support Tear Australia during Christmas time. Tear Australia is an organisation that is trying to alleviate poverty around the world. And this year at Carols, we raised over $400 for Tear Australia. And we're actually looking to establish partnerships with mercy organisations that each focus on refugees, immigrants, and slavery. And we're gonna do that as annual drives, as through once-off donations, because God is concerned about modern slavery and human trafficking. And so we as a church, we too are concerned for those people. And so with our new ministry pathway, we're looking to seek for members who have a passion for mercy and justice ministry to serve as coordinators for each of our potential mercy partners. If that's you, please come and speak to me, and more details will come in the new year. The third practice of greed is indulgence, verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. If our wealth is not used up in the service of others, then wealth ends up serving ourselves. And James is not saying that we can't enjoy the good things of this world. James is talking about that attitude that sees ourselves as the center of all our wealth. Again, James reminds us that judgment will come for the indulgent and that he will come to keep us from envying the indulgent rich, so that we might care, be kept from the temptation of greed. Lastly, betrayal is the practice is a practice of greed. Verse six: "You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you." Condemned is a legal term suggesting that the rich have prevented or tampered the proper legal process to make the innocent charge and killed for things that they did not do or silencing forever a whistleblower. The rich betrayed an innocent person to be the fall guy in order to gain and hold on to selfish gain and wealth. See, wealth that feeds our greed is therefore dangerous when we understand the judgment on God, of God on such attitudes and practices. So how does this play out in our lives? If greed is dangerous, which we see, and acknowledge. How do we not have short-term memory? How do we not be seduced and fall back into greed? Well, firstly, I think the best reminder of the dangers of greed is to remember that it was the love of money that betrayed Jesus. It was the love of money at its core that betrayed Jesus. Jesus was the one and only righteous one. And we need to remember that it was Judas who snitched and sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, Jesus was arrested by the chief priests, but Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't defend himself. He didn't even condemn Judas. Instead, he went to die on the cross as an innocent man, charged with crimes that he did not commit. He died as an innocent man so that the greedy, like Judas, might be forgiven. And we read here in James that God will judge the greedy, yet God in His grace and mercy sent His one and only Son so that the greedy might be free and forgiven. How amazing is that? Jesus is what will keep you from falling into greed when you understand the cost that He took to forgive you. The love of money is not only dangerous for hoarding our wealth from Jesus, it's dangerous because wealth can make you betray Jesus. The love of money can make you give Jesus up for a promotion, for a business startup, for the goal of retiring retiring by 40. You might even give Jesus up just to keep up with the Joneses. The love of money can make you give up the one and only person who can forgive you and save you. God's holy judgment. In those moments and in those junctures in your life, remember that the love of money was the thing that betrayed Jesus. And when that truth seeps deep into your heart, when you understand what Jesus has done for you personally, God will enable you to use your wealth as a devotion to Jesus. When God's grace touches the depths of your heart, We are transformed from being a Judas to a Mary. A Mary who was a disciple who worshipped Jesus extravagantly. And I have to say, this is the most beautiful, most powerful, most moving story about this disciple called Mary. we read it in John chapter 12. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it onto Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wage. He did it, not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, He used it to help himself to what was put into it. We get this beautiful picture, this beautiful story of Mary offering Jesus the most expensive perfume to Jesus as a pure act of loving devotion. You're thinking, how could she worship Jesus in such an expensive, such an extravagant way? If you could own this expensive perfume, it would be considered your most valuable treasure. It was the kind of perfume used to anoint kings and dignitaries. People would have been absolutely gobsmacked. They would have gasped when Mary poured it out, not onto Jesus' head, but onto his feet. Mary gave up the most valuable treasure because she treasured Jesus more. She treasured Jesus whose feet take him to proclaim the gospel and bring many to his eternal kingdom. And that's why the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It is the worship of Jesus that drives our generosity towards mission. Jesus saves you with his life. You've got to say, look, what a saviour, what a God that My own God would give up his life for me. And you're going to think, there's no amount of money that you could ever repay Jesus for what he has done for you. Really, right? There's no amount of money that you could ever repay Jesus for what he has done for you. Then there is no way for you to ever quantify or justify for a particular amount for another person's salvation. Because you've got to remember that someone did not penny pinch their time, their savings, their investments in order for you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Then it will make total sense for us to not penny pinch our time, our savings and investments in order for someone else to find salvation in Jesus. Because whatever we have more, we give it all to Jesus. Because how beautiful are the feet Of those who bring good news. Will you join me in prayer as a moment of devotion, as a moment of worship? Please join me in prayer. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. all my love and trust to him with all my heart in his presence daily I live. All I surrender all to Jesus Christ my King. I surrender everything. I surrender all my hopes and all my dreams. I surrender all and give you everything. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. Or to Jesus I surrender, or to Jesus we surrender. Amen.